We're now in chapter 12 in Acts, but it's the last time we're going to be dealing with the Jewish Christian church in Acts, here in Acts 12. Uh, From here on, it's largely about the outreach of the missionaries to the Gentiles. Paul, Barnabas, Timothy, and Luke himself will be in the rest of Acts. Today we're covering Acts 12, 1 through 5, uh, and once again, Peter is spotlighted. Verses 1 through 5 reads, About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James the brother of John with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And once again, the language in here doesn't fully express what's going on, so we're going to cover a little bit and look and see what Peter is actually mean bring him out to the people things like that now we've talked before at how the historian Luke uh, looked at presenting the history of the church and the timeline of events was not of particular importance to him in chapter 11 when uh, Peter was reporting uh, about the Gentiles in Cornelius's house receiving the Holy Spirit, the very next verse from verse 17 to 18 takes place some years later without Luke mentioning the gap. Today we have the same thing in reverse. Verse 1a says, about that time. What time? Okay. From the end of chapter 11, you would think that Luke was talking about Paul and Barnabas coming to Jerusalem with the offerings for the saints in Jerusalem. So when he says about that time, you're thinking, oh, well, you know, Paul and Barnabas show up and, and then Herod has James killed. But that's not the case. The events we're covering today occur two years before Paul and Barnabas travel to Jerusalem. Okay, so we've stepped back and saying about that time was close enough for Luke because they weren't concerned with the timeline they were in concerned with grouping events together in their histories and it was a common device used in ancient history the timeline wasn't important it's not like it's going to be on the evening news and we're going to follow it along this way we do know when the offering was sent uh, for famine relief from Josephus' secular account of the famine And when chapter 12 of Acts takes place also because of the martyrdom of James. We know those timelines. Verse 1b says, about that time, Herod. Now, which Herod? Because we'll see this often. There are six Herods mentioned in Scripture. And sometimes they are only said to be Herod. Now, the people Luke was writing to knew who these Herods were. We, luckily, we have history. We can go back and find out who these Herods were. 
But when you just say Herod, a casual observer will not know what's mean. Uh, as, as though all of these Herods are interchangeable. Now the funny thing is, is the Herods really are sort of interchangeable. <laughs> they went from Herod the Great, who was bad, uh, to uh, Herod Agrippa here, who was also bad. I mean, the Herods by and large were bad, bad people. The rotten apple doesn't fall far from the family tree, or from the tree in this family. We have a saying that you can't tell the players without a scorecard, so I'll provide you with a brief scorecard. Batting first is Herod, the original Herod. He is known in history as Herod the Great. Uh, Herod the Great was the Herod of the nativity story of Jesus. The one the wise men presented themselves to, the one who ordered the killing of the baby boys in in the vicinity of uh, Bethlehem. I like the way JewishHistory.org described in their very first sentence about Herod the Great. They um, they said Herod was a certified madman, but had moments of genuine concern for the country. In the end, though, his legacy was one of paranoia, terror, murder, and evil. Okay? Now, that's, that's what JewishHistory.org says about their own Herod the Great. He was not a rightful Jewish king because he was a convert. His family was a convert to Judaism. And because of that, they were looked down on. Hebrew Jews looking on the uh, Hellenized Jews with, with as though they were lesser Jews. Remember then that Herod's even further down the line. Uh, not only is he a Hellenized Jew, but he's, his family converted to Judaism. He was named king of Israel by the Roman Senate He grew up in Rome. And the thing to remember about most of these Herods is they did grow up in Rome. They did not grow up in Israel. I believe that Herod was not happy about being king of Israel. It was a backwater compared to Rome. In fact, the Herods grew up with the sons and daughters of the Caesars. They knew them personally. This is how... Uh, Herod the Great got appointment as the king of Israel. The Jews never accepted Herod as their real king. And he was constantly fearing being overthrown. Not just by the people, but by people in his own family. He had his wife and three of his sons executed because of the worry, and it might have been well-founded, that he was looking to be overthrown by his own family. The same year he ordered the killing of the baby boys in Bethlehem. Now, see, we don't know this. and It's sort of like, why doesn't God judge these evil kings? Well, the same year he had the baby boys uh, murdered in uh, uh, Bethlehem, he died of cancer. It says he was eaten up with worms. Well, that, you know, that's cancer of the stomach. And uh, anyway, he was judged by God. He did not get away with the murder of the innocents. And knowing 
that Israel would not mourn his death. As he was dying, he had all the leading Jews of Israel round up and thrown into prison to be executed on the day that he died so that there would be mourning in the land. Okay? What can I say? Uh, this, was, this was not a good guy. By the way, just to let you know, they were let out of prison on uh, Herod's death and resumed their duties throughout Israel. Israel was divided into four sections when Herod died. And three of his sons and one daughter, uh, Salome, were given rule over them. Uh, Herod Archaeus governed Judea. He was an erratic ruler. He was... He oppressed his people. This was the ruler that Joseph and Mary took Jesus and fled to Egypt under because he was oppressive and erratic and Joseph and Mary went to Egypt during his reign. Archaeus was removed from office eventually and replaced with a Roman governor who you might have heard of, Pontius Pilate. So here's our timeline. We have Herod the Great, Herod Archaeus, who is then removed, and Judea is then, from then on, ruled by Roman governors. After after Pontius Pilate, it would be Felix and, and then Festus. So we do not see a Herod over them again. Herod Antipas became tetrarch of Galilee, and a tetrarch means a kingdom is divided into four, and you are ruling one fourth of this uh, um, land. So Herod Antipas became tetrarch of Galilee when Herod the Great, his father, died. This is the Herod of Jesus' public ministry. So if Jesus is going about in uh, in Galilee, and he and Herod is mentioned, it is going to be Herod Antipas. Um, this is the one who imprisoned and executed John the Baptist. In Mark 6, he worried about Jesus' um, identity. If Jesus was John the Baptist returned from the dead, and so the reason you need to understand that is because he had John the Baptist killed. And was Jesus, John the Baptist, coming back? In Luke, when Jesus was told that Herod was wanting to kill him, Jesus called him that fox, okay, is how Jesus referred to him. Herod Antipas was who Pontius Pilate sent Jesus to when Pilate could find no crime with Jesus. So at Jesus' trial, first, you know, he's before the high priest, then they send him to Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate says, this has nothing to do with me and sends Jesus to Herod Antipas. So that's who this Herod was. That brings us to Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa was a grandson of Herod the Great. So now we're into our third generation of of Herods. Josephus says of Agrippa. Now, this king was by nature very beneficent and liberal in his gifts and very ambitious to oblige people with such large donations. And he made himself very illustrious by the many chargeable, meaning expensive, presents he made them. He took delight in giving and rejoiced in living with good reputation. 
He was not at all like that Herod who reigned before him, for that Herod was ill-natured and severe in his punishments and had no mercy on them that he hated. And everyone perceived that he was more friendly to the Greeks than to the Jews, for he adorned foreign cities with large presents and money. Uh, But Agrippa's temper was mild and equally liberal to all men. He was humane to foreigners and made them sensible of his liberality. He was in like manner rather of a gentle and compassionate temper. Accordingly, he loved to live continually at Jerusalem and was exactly careful in the observance of the laws of his country. He therefore kept himself entirely pure, nor did any day pass over his head without its appointed sacrifice. Well, Josephus was doing a really good job of buttering, buttering up Agrippa here, because that's not really exactly what Agrippa was like. Herod Agrippa, who, uh, like his grandfather, was not truly Jewish, but he tried to live as one when he was in Jerusalem because of the turmoil that the other Herods had had. Along that line, he decided to get in good with the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem by going after Christianity, this new Jewish splinter sect. And he decided not to go after the entire movement, but to just go after the leaders and cut the head off. Verse 2 says, He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Now, this was probably done by beheading the same as it was done with John the Baptist because it was a shameful death for a Jew. It was not a typical Jewish form of Sanhedrin, but in the Mishnah Sanhedrin, beheading was allowed in the case of apostasy. So you can see where Agrippa is going with this. We have this splinter sect. They think Jesus is God. Apostasy to him. Now, James is the first of the apostles to be martyred. He was also, along with John, the first of the disciples to be called. And interestingly, and there's probably great significance in this that I cannot, have not found and have not looked deeply enough, James is the first apostle to die. John is the last. They were the first two called. They were the closest to Jesus along with Peter. His brother John is described as the one that Jesus loved and as such was the last of the apostles to die. The brothers bookend the life and ministry of those closest to Jesus. When when they were young, they were full of fire. Fire, hubris, zeal. In their youth, they were all gung-ho on what they were doing. Uh, Jesus and it's interesting to read this. Jesus called them the sons of thunder. It only shows up once in the Gospels. We don't know why Jesus said that, other than they were impetuous, and he probably said it with a smile on his face when he called them the sons of thunder. Because, though they were impetuous, that was not truly a great description of the two brothers. But when they were young, they they had, like I said, the... uh, zeal of youth 
and they had competed with the other disciples for the place of honor in the kingdom of God. Mark 10, 35-45 tells us of these desires of theirs. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's a nice way to really... We'd like you to do for us whatever we ask of you. You know, it's sort of... Uh, Anyway, what can I... A little bit out of their lane. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism, uh, baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand, or at my left, is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. Jesus chides John and James gently that they don't know what they are asking for but he continues on like it says that they will experience what Jesus experiences in this way Jesus prophesies the way they will die they will die a martyr's death and and while James dies by the sword as a martyr along and the rest of the apostles will be martyred John does not die that death. And yet, though he lives to an old age, in, very, in a very real way, he drinks that cup and lives that baptism. For though he doesn't die by execution for his faith, he spends his life as a living martyr, which is a old term, Okay? Radio show Dennis Prager, his producer, who went to, as a Christian, he calls him the living martyr. Okay, this is where the, John lived as a living martyr to Jesus throughout his life. He has, as Jesus commanded, picked up his cross and followed his Lord, not shrinking from the hardship or denying his Savior. When the other disciples heard of James and John's Request they were outraged, Mark 10, 41 through 45. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Jesus takes that moment to teach the great lesson of the servant-led uh, servanthood of a Christian life, a lesson the twelve will never forget and will forever follow. They, there will be no after the twelve are in place after Jesus is replaced. They will never again fight among themselves about who is great. So as it says, James was put to the sword. 
by Herod Agrippa, and this is without a trial. Okay, there is no trial, not, uh, not the same with Jesus. Herod has James seized and executed. This is what's called the king's right of the sword. He has the power of life and death in his kingdom, and he is allowed the right of the sword to unilaterally determine between life and death. This was a purely political execution. He did not bring James before the high priest. It was, there was not a Sanhedrin trial. This was purely political, and neither did do we have any mention that the Jewish officials objected quite the opposite in the very next verse. Verse 3a points out that when Herod had James executed, and he, when, he, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, okay, it pleased the Jews. When, when Herod had James just seized and executed, it pleased the Jews in Jerusalem and going on. So... He proceeded to arrest Peter also. Herod Agrippa seems to plan to take out all the leaders of the Christian church in Jerusalem. The rest of verse 3 continues, This was during the days of unleavened bread. Now, just as Jesus uh, could not be left on the cross during Passover, neither would Agrippa have Peter executed during the holiday. It just wasn't done. But there was another reason he wouldn't have it done. He had already seen that killing James pleased the Jews. The Passover holiday is here. Not everybody that will be flooding into Jerusalem has arrived yet. He wants maximum exposure for what he's doing next. So... The unleavened bread, killing him during the uh, Passover, the timing would work against his purposes. He was not trying to hide what he had planned for Peter. Instead, he planned to make Peter a, a symbol of his power and have him executed at the end of the Passover celebrations. So to that end, I mentioned before... Verse 4 says, And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So, the words here used for seized means violence was used. It's not just grab him and drag him off. It was violence was used. And though Luke doesn't tell us what that violence was, it probably wasn't pleasant. I would not be surprised that Agrippa had heard how hard it was to keep Christians in jail. And so to that end, he turned Peter over uh, to the gentle care of four squads of Roman soldiers. Um, A squad consisted of four men. And what was going to happen here was that they rotated their watch, especially during the night. Now, two of the men will be chained to the prisoner and spend the night behind the bars in the jail cell. The other two will guard the jail cell. Every three hours, a new guard rotates in so that everybody is fresh. Uh, Three-hour guards are actually real common on uh, sailing ships of the 1700s and stuff like that. 
so that people would not fall asleep. They figured people could stay awake for three hours. That's what the Romans did. Four squads will get you through the 12 hours of darkness with two men chained to you and two men guarding. And if the prisoner escapes, everybody is executed. These soldiers were to keep Peter until after Passover when he would be brought out, as it says, to the people, which means not for the people to vote on, uh, you know, who do you want, Barabbas or Jesus. They will bring him out to the people for execution. And that's purely what this means here. Verse 5 says, So, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now Peter himself had once raised arms against Roman soldiers, brandishing a sword in the Garden of Gethsemane and cutting off the ear of the uh, high priest. Jesus himself commanded Peter to lay down his sword and then proceeded to heal the servant. The church did not contemplate rescuing Peter. For truly in the prison of the Romans and guarded by the Roman guards, Peter was beyond human help. And they knew it. Men could not save him. And the church in Jerusalem turned to a higher power. Earnest prayer to God. You know, I think it's human nature that when all else fails... Uh, When we give up all hope, then we pray, right? Winston Churchill (laughs) once famously said that Americans will always do the right thing after they've tried everything else. Okay, except that Winston Churchill... I look these quotes up so that I don't say something. Winston Churchill didn't say it. Abba Ibn is the first person, Israeli Prime Minister. Abba Ibn is the first one to have ever said that. Hillsdale College, who also investigates quotes, said uh, about Winston Churchill saying, undocumented but not uncharacteristic. (laughs) It's something that he would have said. Anyway, nevertheless, doesn't that sentiment sum up some of us in modern Christianity? We'll always go to prayer after we've tried everything else. And I think that that's Interesting. I'm speaking of myself here and nobody else. I really am not. And yet, you know, with Ryan Coher being taken in Mozambique, we had nothing we could do but pray. And so we did go to prayer immediately because there was nothing else we could do. We could not go free him. Well, we couldn't free him if we wanted to. He's probably guarded like Peter in jail. But, but do we pray at the first or do we try to handle things in our power first? Uh, many years ago, Aaron and I were um, the child, the old, old, getting older childless couple at our church. And uh, it didn't matter when we were relative newlyweds that we didn't have children. But then as years went by and Tempest fugited, we thought we'd never have children to the extent that we even considered seeking medical help. And if, if you know Aaron and I, we never seek medical help for anything. And uh, we almost got to that point and, and I said, well, if we want children, maybe we should pray. 
And we had Megan immediately. Well, not immediately. It took nine months. But, but immediately we prayed in God's will. It was God's will for us to have children. We prayed in God's will. And we had immediately our childlessness was gone. The early church never seemed to make that mistake. Perhaps it was because they were weak. Perhaps it's because they had seen Jesus be killed. Perhaps it's because God filled with miraculous circumstances immediately after Jesus' crucifixion. But the first thing the church does is go to prayer. When Peter was taken on the orders of Herod Agrippa, an appeal an appeal was not made to the authorities. They did not go. Remember that uh, John was throughout Jesus' uh, trial and at the crucifixion because he was allowed to be because he was from an important family. But they did not appeal to the authorities. Nor was an attempt made at a rescue, which of course would have been a disaster. But verse 5 shows the appropriate first response to the situation. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. It has often been noted that one difference between men and women when faced with a problem is a man always wants to fix it, right? You know, come on. It's true, because every, every time something happens in our family, I want to go and take care of it. Now, fix generally means hit. No, not quite, but it's not out of the realm of possibility that you go and you take care of it with, uh, with less than gentle means. Once again, I direct you to the Apostle Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus, confronted by the priests and soldiers to arrest Jesus. Peter immediately lashes out as though his violence would interrupt God's divine plan, because that's what it would be doing, interrupting God's divine plan. And that's the point of what the church does here. Does God not know what is happening? Does he not plan all things according to his wisdom? Peter is taken by Herod's evil plan, but as it says, earnest prayer was made for him to God by the church. The prayers raised were to get the church in line with God's will as much as it was to affect Peter's release. Because if God had not wanted Peter's release, if it worked in his plan better, he would not have been released. But the church needed to be in line with God's will. We are faced in the world today with a society seemingly in collapse in almost every way you can think of it. With the utter abandonment of all cultural norms and it would be easy to strike out. But the first Christians were faced with not what we're facing today. They were faced with pagan Rome. The first Christians were faced, you know, we talk about abortion. They had turning children out onto dung heaps to have them killed, to have them die of exposure. They had pagan Rome who just had Peter the Apostle put to death 
for no reason other than the king wanted it done. For me to think that we are facing in this country unprecedented paganism would be to not understand what pagan Rome was like or pagan Greece for that matter. It's not, what we are looking at today is not something that the world has not seen before. And knowing that, one has to look at what the Christians did to fight it. They fought it, not to the death, but with their lives. They were willing to sacrifice everything for what they believed in. They were mocked for starting orphanages and gathering up the children. They did it in the face of not just criticism, but death from the authorities. When they would oppose the practices of the pagan religions, Nero would have them nailed in crosses. He would light up his gardens at night with the bodies of Christians who would not back down. They did not do anything violent. They did not raise arms against the country, but they did not back down. And you will note that in a thoroughly non-Christian world, they changed that world in 300 years. We are living... I pointed this out a while back, that everything we know in the world came from Christianity. Even in the non-Christian worlds, the ideas of justice and, and love and charity all came from Christians, which means that we are not working from a standpoint of a pagan worldview. We have the echoes of a Christian worldview behind us that should help us as we live our lives to stand up as a witness for God. The first Christians were faced with demonic persecution. We do not live in a worse world than that. They lived in a world entirely ruled by force. To fight that force, it would be natural to use violence against it. Instead, the church went to prayer. As I constantly point out, look at what God teaches us in his word on first instances. In this case, the execution of James and the imprisonment of Peter. God, in his wisdom, was in control of both situations. And each worked out according to his perfect plan. One, seemingly tragically, one, a long life of another brother. But each one of those worked out to God's perfect plan. We are not living in a worse world than the early Christians were. That's my inspiring, uplifting thought for the day, is that prayer first, prayer first. Let's close in prayer. Prayer last. Lord, we do thank you that as we look at the example of the church and when faced with the senseless killing of their leaders and the planned killing of, the, of Peter, 
that they went to you in prayer. They prayed for your will and for supernatural saving of their brother. Lord, as we face what we see going on in the world, keep us in prayer. Help us to go to prayer first. Let us not go to prayer after trying everything else. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.